You're listening to Alumni Allowed, a new podcast by Graduate Center students for Graduate Center students. In each episode, we talk with a GC graduate about their career and the advice they would give current students. This series is sponsored by the Office of Career Planning and Professional Development at the Graduate Center. I'm Anders Wallace, a PhD candidate in the Anthropology program at the Graduate Center. In this episode, I sit down with Avalon Garcia, who is Senior Medical Writer for Evolution Medical Communications, a consulting firm that crafts communication and educational materials for pharmaceutical companies and the patients and healthcare staff they serve. Avalon earned her PhD in 2008 in biochemistry from Hunter College in the GC. In this episode, Avalon talks about the importance of inviting feedback on your work, the value of getting started early in your job search, and how to cultivate those all-important mindsets of lifelong learning and collaboration that will help you thrive in your new working life. My name is Avalon Garcia, and I work in medical communications, and I work as a medical writer. And basically what that means is I work for a consulting firm, essentially, who is hired by pharmaceutical companies to help them create educational materials targeted to doctors or nurses or pharmacists or Mm. anyone else who's involved in the care of a patient. So sometimes the materials might be tailored for patients themselves. And the goal is to educate the particular audience about a new drug or about a new indication for an existing drug and and just educating them about how effective the drug is, what mm-hmm. the safety considerations are, mm-hmm. and maybe answer any questions that people might have. You work on the writing side, writing materials for these different consumers or users of the products and the medicines. Can you tell me a little more about your academic background? Well, I received a my PhD in biochemistry from Hunter College, working with David Foster. And my research was primarily involved um, in oncology, looking at cell signaling and trying to understand how a particular protein or enzyme called phospholipase D, how how that played a role in conferring um, resistance to death when certain cancer cells were exposed to stressful conditions. So for instance, if you if you removed the nutrients from the serum, there were certain cells that were that said, I'm fine, I can grow. Actually, you know what, I'm gonna be more cancerous. And we've shown that part of that um, response was because of high activity levels of phospholipase D. And then I went off and I did a postdoc at Mount Sinai, again in oncology, but working in mouse models, looking at other cell signaling pathways that involve metabolism of vitamin A. That sounds like very cutting edge research and very important research. Can you tell me a bit more about how you got into biochemistry, you know, before your PhD? I, I received my undergraduate degree at the City College of New York up in Harlem. And I started off as a biology major, and within, I think, three weeks of my program, I changed to biochemistry. And I think it's because I I love mathematics, mm-hmm. and once I saw that the curriculum was mostly, it, it didn't have a heavy focus on mathematics courses or physics courses. I know this sounds weird, but I, I wanted a bigger challenge, mm-hmm. so that's why I pursued my undergraduate in biochemistry. I just love the um, 
optics of looking at the math and the physics mm. associated with biochemical, biological processes. What led you from the postdoc into technical writing? Well, I, I loved research. There was a point in my life where I thought about what do I enjoy most about my postdoc? And the best parts for me was when I was assigned to to students and I had to train them and I had to teach them and get them excited um, about science. And it was just all about providing them with the right educational tools to help spark that interest. So that to me was the most fun and having scientific discourse. I enjoyed the research, but these things can take a while before you can hit something very interesting. So then I, I, I decided, well, when, before I started my postdoc, I said to myself, I'm going to set a milestone. I'm going to give myself a year. And within that year, I should have done A, B, and C. And I wasn't getting certain things that I wanted out of my postdoc that I thought were important for my development if I was to stay in academia. Can you say briefly what those were? Maybe what, in retrospect, what I would have liked to have experienced was maybe even curriculum for postdocs where it says within the first six months, this is what, you know, you're going to be challenged with. You have to show competency in A. Mm -hmm. After another six months, competency in B. And that could either be grant writing. Mm -hmm. So even if you have not received a grant, you need to have at least written two or three submitted applications Mm -hmm. for at least two or three grants just to get experience in that. So Mm -hmm. that would be one milestone, right? Practicing writing grants. The second would be leading meetings. You know, if you're having lab meetings, you should uh, practice being the PI and asking certain questions and challenging people and educating people and listening. So, So in retrospect, if I were in charge of a postdoctoral program, I would have a curriculum built. So just like when you're a grad, graduate student, they say after a certain point, you're supposed to defend your master's thesis. After a certain point, you're supposed to you know, publish something. So similarly, I think that's what was lacking for me. I was in charge of setting those milestones and no one else was. So it wasn't structured and you weren't learning as much as you wanted and thought it would be worth. Yeah, and a lot of times I felt like I had to push. Okay, I want to go to this this conference and I would apply for grants so that I can get funding for that. Oh, mm. I'm going to apply for this uh, grant to support my research. And it just, it just all came from mm. me internally and I felt like there might have been other parts that I was missing. What's, what's important to run a lab? You know, so so that's that's what I was missing. But thankfully, at Mount Sinai, they have the technology transfer office and they had an internship program. I applied for it because I was always interested in things beyond academia. I didn't want to be in this little bubble. I, I really wanted to understand how the work that we did impacted businesses and the environments outside of the academic institution. Mm. And I got a sense of that with a tech transfer internship. We Mm. were responsible for looking at patents as it relates to certain uh, technologies. We were able to review documents from doctors who might have a procedure or a new test that they think is commercially viable. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting to me. And that's really what sparked my interest in going outside of academia. Fascinating. So you got to interface with this world of more applied, you know, chemistry and medicine and 
help to vet those procedures and research mm-hmm. methods. And then you found that it, it also had this mentoring or almost this communication and teaching component to it. Absolutely. Uh, because one of the projects we worked on was, okay, if there if there, there's this new potential technology coming out of Mount Sinai, what sort of presentation would you put together to explain the technique and the history of it to potential investors? So to me, that would that, that was interesting, tailoring the story to a particular audience and not always assuming that everyone knows what an enzyme means, etc. So that was fun for me. I think a lot of students relate to the pleasures of teaching in that way. And can you tell me what's a typical day like in the office, if there is such a thing? There is no typical day. The only thing that always happens is deadlines. There's always a deadline that you have to meet. There are always meetings with colleagues to make sure that we're meeting our deadlines, that the product that we're going to deliver, the the educational material, meets the requirements of the clients. So if they say we want a slide deck that is for a 30-minute presentation, then we know we cannot have a slide deck that has 90 slides. Mm, <laughs> that yeah. will not fit within a 30-minute time frame. So it's just always being aware of deadlines. and project always management. Project management and hustling. Keep on the ball with what's Absolutely. coming out and what needs to be written and mm-hmm. produced. So what's the atmosphere like in your workplace? Imagine it to be a typical office with lots of scientists So the medical writers, the folks who are on the scientific teams or the the medical teams at medical communications agencies usually have PhDs, MDs, PharmDs, there's some masters. So basically they're all desk scientists. A big part of our work involves doing research into published articles. So if we're trying to tell a story about a particular drug and its impact on a particular population, we have to have literary support for that. So we're either looking at a poster that was presented at a conference or we're looking at a publication to see what key messages we can we can pull out of those materials and also those materials serve as support for what we're saying. There's that research, that secondhand synthesis work. And as far as the the atmosphere, as you yes. mentioned, it's like a typical office. Is it social, collegial, or is it quite individual, the work it's you do? It's both. So the office plans are usually very open. So your desk is usually right next to another person. You meet often with whoever is the lead for your team to make sure deliverables are being met. Mm -hmm. People are very social and and collaborative. Usually I might be working on a project, but I might be collaborating with another medical writer or I might be consulting with someone who interfaces with the clients more often. I might be collaborating with them to address questions, but it's mm-hmm. it's an office environment. They're usually very colorful and, and visually engaging because you're deep in black and white text <laughs> all the time. People are typically collegiate at these offices because here's the gist. You have to be a team player. You You do work as an individual for blocks of time to get work done, but it's never done in a bubble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You are always implementing changes based on other people's opinions of something you've put together Mm -hmm. that you've started. You have to be a team player. So there's that constant collaboration and iteration. All the time. 
Yeah. Was that a struggle from an academic background to be in a more social space or that felt natural? That was very natural for me because even during my graduate training and postdoctoral training, I was always involved in extracurricular activities that helped me to develop interpersonal skills. Mm. I'm not saying that I'm the best, but a big part of doing well in this field is knowing how to engage with people the right way. Mm. You're not the lone scientist with a pipetter doing your own thing and not needing anyone else. You have to know how to communicate to your team members. You have to know how to communicate to the clients. And it's not just verbally, but it's also in writing. Because sometimes we might be working with team members who do not have a science background and we have to explain the science to them in a manner that allows them to have intelligent conversations with the, the client. What do you enjoy the most about your work? And you touched on this already as far as the teaching and the communication. Collaborating with people. I don't have an issue with other folks having constructive opinions about something that I've created. I personally believe that I can create a platform or a starting product and then with everyone else's brains and their input we can all collectively make it better so if someone says to me this isn't clear to me I don't I don't understand it I, I kind of see where you're trying to go but it's still fuzzy to me I don't feel insulted my response is ask certain questions. What is unclear? What exactly is making it hard for you to digest the information here? And then I see it as a challenge. Okay, my goal is to fix this so that it's clear for that person. So that's what I enjoy the most, that the challenge of making something that's complex, simple. I love it. And this touches into the next question I'd ask. What are the keys to success in your field? Always having the mindset of a learner because you might think you know something on Monday and then it's different on Thursday. Mm. So that's one thing. Always have the mindset of a learner and two, being very flexible. You have to be flexible because sometimes you, you go into the office on Tuesday thinking, these are the three things I'm going to do. At 9.02, things change. You have to do seven other things and still somehow figure out how to do the first three things you plan to do or you flag it to your team and you say, I know we've changed priorities. You want me to do these alternative things, but I am not able to finish the three things I was really supposed to do today. How can we work together to adjust? Can we adjust timelines? Can we adjust deadlines? Can we bring other team members in to chip in? So being flexible, having a learner mindset, and just having tough skin. Because a lot of times you will take a complex principle and simplify it and you're like, this is awesome. And then someone else reads it and they're like, no, I don't like it. And it's either your team member or it's the client. And sometimes some people are nice about saying they don't like something or it's not clear. And others are a little harsher. So you have to have tough skin and not take things personally. What do you find the most frustrating about your work? The switching of timelines and the expectations of a particular deliverable. So we might start off with an assignment of, we need a slide deck for a 60 minute presentation at this particular conference. And you're creating the content with that in mind. 
And then close to the end of the project, you're told, oh, we have to change it. It's now 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's about a completely different topic. And you still have only two more weeks. So sometimes, you know, my heart is pounding. Oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? And the key is to, if you're unsure about an approach, reach out to your team and say, I'm unsure about this. I don't know where to start. Can someone give me some ideas? Because sometimes when you're in the midst of something, at least for me, I might find it hard to just take a step back in that moment to figure out what the approach is. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes for certain projects it's hard. If I have a lot of other things going on, I just can't get my mind out of the other work to think strategically about an important project. So that switching can be hard. And it can be. Is it also hard to work on writing and then also have to constantly talk? No, it's, it's not difficult because whenever we put our materials, educational materials together, we have to assume that someone will be presenting it to an audience, whether it's a slide deck that's being presented to a large audience or a printed piece. So when I actually put together materials, I practice reading them and I practice presenting them because a, a big part of what we do is when we create our materials and we're ready to share them with the client, we actually have to walk them through it. We have to present it to them. So I'm always practicing presenting while I'm writing. Did you see yourself in academia when you were going through your PhD training? Did you think that you would have an academic career for the rest of your life? I'll tell you this much. When I was in my graduate training and even before, I always wanted to be a teacher. Whether that was being a professor, I just wanted to teach, I wanted to educate, and that's what I'm doing in medical communications. I could have seen myself as a professor, but not as a research professor stuck in the office writing grants. That was not going to be me. I would have stayed in academia if I was presented with an opportunity to serve as a teacher or to have a lab where I would train students on different laboratory techniques and how to think and experiment. Because for me, when I was doing research, what was fun was we had a question, we had to do a particular thing with cells, extract certain proteins, but the kids that were available didn't really do exactly what we wanted them to do. So I really enjoyed taking existing protocols and tweaking them to create my own so they were suitable for my unique situation. Mm -hmm. So that's something I would want to be able, I wanted to be able to teach others to do. But being the PI and writing the grants, I knew, I knew, I knew it was not for me. Yeah. And there's a lot of pressure in academia to be that kind of an mm -hmm. academic scholar. And I've only known of, of one person in my environment whose primary job was to be a professor, a teacher, not someone who teaches as well as someone who runs a lab. And I, I, I didn't know how that person got that position. I just didn't know. I didn't think there were more opportunities un unless that person left. <laughs> I would have stayed in academia if I could have focused primarily on teaching and engaging students and lighting that fire for them to to, to stay in the sciences. And then the postdoc, would it be accurate to say, was a bit of the experience where you realized, all right, this, this isn't really for me and this is a better suited role in terms of the communication design and the social side of the a work. Absolutely. Was it a hard decision to leave when you decided to no, leave? No, it wasn't. It was almost at the year mark and I, I gave myself a year. 
So you knew in advance your your goals and your own timeline. So that was a helpful thing for you rather than just modeling through. Yes. And so did you have any mentors or any people who helped you in this career change? No. (laughs) Unfortunately, even to this day, I don't think there is an appropriate forum to help support or educate those graduate students who know they are not going to do research. They know I'm getting into research because I'm going off into a non-academic career. I don't know what that is. So I did not have anyone to talk to. I just, when I applied for the medical writer position at my first agency, I really didn't even know what was involved in that work. So that leads me to talk a little bit about one of my own personal passions. Whenever I give talks, At different places, I encourage students to reach out to me if you want to get a sense of what it's like to work in medical communications. Mm -hmm. And part of that is I give them a little assignment to create a slide deck based on the product label for a particular drug. Just to give them a sense of the things that you have to look for, the ways you have to think. Because I wish that I had that to get a better understanding of the work that I would be doing. And so you do still have a leg in academia in that way? is that a, a little bit. And, and I wish I had more. I, I wish I could give more. But mm. the downside to medical communications is that it's all-consuming. There really is no downtime. The work mm. that you do is billable. So every 15 minutes of your time has to be for the most part billable so I can't even say I can take my lunch break to review something that a student sent me or I can leave work at 4 30 or 5 o'clock and it's tough because I'm also a mom of a toddler so when I get home that's my other job so in an ideal world I would have a business where I give students or other folks who are trying to transition out of academia into medical communications I would give them an opportunity to do real-world projects Mm -hmm. to build their portfolio so that they are stronger candidates for transitioning into that field. And not just stronger candidates, it would give them a sense of the kind of work they're going to do because I've seen people transition into medical communications and they last three months and they're done. So sometimes maybe knowing ahead of time what the work really entails. Depending on the agency you move to, you're thrown into the deep end, sink or swim. Mm. Some people are able to swim and others are not. So yeah, that's the biggest part. The, yeah. the type of training and mentorship that you receive within the first three to six months in this job is important for your success and survival in that field. But they do provide training. Some agencies Some do. Some agencies do. And I think... Those that may not have in the past are working really hard to create a program or create programs to train people. Are there any credentials or educational experiences that would help someone adjust or fit this role of medical writing? A PhD is sufficient. Experience teaching and presenting. So if you're going to a conference as a graduate student and you're giving a 10-minute presentation about your, your research That's a big plus. That's something you have to put in your resume. If you're teaching, Mm -hmm. describe some of the the work that you're doing as an instructor. That's important. So the Mm -hmm. credentials are already there as part of your training. Some people might say, I've heard folks tell me joining the American Medical Writers Association is also a good thing. So there are a couple of groups that you can join that would be helpful. But I say the big part is getting practice. Practice creating slide decks 
based on recently approved FDA drugs. So if you could set up a Google alert to get anything that says FDA.gov or FDA, if you can have that sent to your email. And if you see XYZ drug was just approved for schizophrenia, go to the website for that drug, find the package insert, also known as the prescribing information, which is also known as the, the product label, find that document and try to see if you can put together a slide deck on the indications and safety and efficacy of this particular drug. That's the bulk of what we do. Practice that, create a visual slide deck. When I say visual, very few words, lots of images mm -hmm. and figures, and use that as part of your portfolio. That's great advice to create a portfolio, yes. even if it's a mock portfolio. Yes. Yeah. I mean, with LinkedIn, you have an opportunity to have links to some of your work, and you can put that slide deck on there. And so the skills students need to succeed are largely already baked into their program. And are there other skills that someone could learn as far as becoming better at things like communication design? Teaching is one thing. Does anything come to mind that would be helpful? Extracurricular, for example? Toastmasters. Join a Toastmasters group because they can give you constructive feedback on the way that you communicate in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. Present as much as possible, and what you can do is have one of your, your colleagues or your mentor or someone in the audience who is responsible for critiquing your presentation and give them a list of things you can for them to look for. And you can find mm -hmm. this on various websites online that you know point out what's important to be an effective communicator, it's the ums, the ahs, the eye contact, you know, how loud your voice is. So, so have someone in the audience whose primary job is to give you some feedback on those areas. And yeah. there's nothing wrong with putting that in your resume, that you are so interested in being a better communicator that you've taken the step to have someone help you out with that. And also a key thing too, to transition into this industry, if you have a PhD in the sciences, is to read articles, journal articles from medical journals. So when you're in a, in a PhD program, you're used to looking at science or a cell or nature. You need to look at the New England Journal of Medicine so you can be familiar with how they present clinical trial data. That actually, to me, would be the most important thing learn how they organize their papers. They start with the study design. This is how many patients we recruited. These are the various arms that they were split into. Arm, the arm on the left received this treatment for a certain period of time. The arm on the right, something similar, maybe the placebo. And then the next set of data would be the baseline characteristics. Who are these patients? What are their ages? What were some of the conditions that they presented with? Look for that sort of readout. Mm -hmm. And then look at the efficacy. Look at how they're presenting the efficacy of the drug versus the comparator. And then finally, look at how they present the, the safety. And safety is basically adverse events. Mm -hmm. So being able to navigate a clinical trial paper to me is the most essential thing that someone would have to do, be able to do in medical communications. Mm. And you can do that now. Students have access to the library. So again, back to the FDA.gov 
alerts. If you see that there's a new drug that was recently approved, try to find a clinical journal that explains the clinical trial that formed the basis of this drug approval. Practice navigating it. It's a bit like a case study. Basically, whatever your field is or whatever your interests, look for the, the, the clinical journal associated with your field. And then practice reading through these, digesting and yes. synthesizing the information. Yes, yes for a different audience. Exactly. Were there any other resources at the GC or experiences that helped you prepare for your career? I was involved in a lot of extracurricular activities. It was just ingrained in me. I just didn't want to be stuck in a lab. I wanted to, to branch out. So I was involved in a lot of student groups. I think it was the biochemistry club or something at the Graduate Center. I was a, I think it was the student representative for the biochemistry department at these meetings Mm -hmm. where there were discussions about creating new programs and curriculum. So so I was listening to faculty members Mm -hmm. discuss how to make the Graduate Center better, and I was representing the, the biochemistry students. That was great. Mm-hmm. Also, a lot of the work that I did in terms of extracurricular activities were related to career options and, and hosting events to bring students together to talk about mm-hmm. alternative careers, to talk about training that they would need. So just mm-hmm. basically hosting events, that's great because it gives you experience planning in advance. Because a lot of times that's what we do in medical communication. So if there's a conference coming up on December 10th, you need to plan, okay, six months in advance, we need to start the work and we need to be at a certain point at month one, mm. month two, etc. So similarly, when you're planning an event as a student, you need to know it's happening on this date. That means we have to have the food ordered. We have to have speakers confirmed by this point. What are the logistics the day of? That's an important skill because it's applying strategy. It's not science, but you're, you're thinking ahead and you're ready to respond to any unforeseen complications because right. that always happens and it's good to practice. And also network. When yeah. every two years there's a what can you be with a PhD event, go to that. And when you go to certain tables where company representatives are posted, because I've been the representative a Uh few times at these events when you take their business card reach out to them afterwards and say i was really interested and i'm really happy that we connected i'm interested in this field Mm. do you have an opportunity for us to meet for coffee or over lunch discuss what it's like to work in that industry if you're not able to meet is there another colleague of yours who would be interested because i guarantee you Within every company, there's that one person who is happy to talk about their experience so Mm -hmm. that someone else can be well-informed so that they can decide, you know what, that's the right path for me or it's not. The advice I would give anyone, or if I could do this all over again, I wish I had thought about my career path within the first year of being in grad school Mm -hmm. rather than waiting until, oh, I'm a year away from defending. Make those connections early. Start creating your portfolio early so that when it's time to transition, if you will not go into academia immediately after your graduate studies, you have people to reach out to and you have more options and you've had some chance to research. And also some companies allow you to intern if you're a PhD student. So talk to your advisors or, or someone to see 
if you can take a month or two off in the summer, if that's even possible, I don't know, <laughs> to do an internship with a particular company. If you feel that strongly that academia is not for you. That's a wrap for this episode of Alumni Aloud. I want to thank Avalon for coming on the show to share her experiences in medical writing with our listeners. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us about your experience listening to Alumni Aloud by filling out our survey. Just click the Alumni Aloud link on our homepage. Remember to stay tuned for more episodes of Alumni Aloud published every other week during the fall and spring semesters. Subscribe on iTunes and you'll automatically be notified when new episodes are released. Also, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and career planning website at cuny.is careerplan for more updates from our office or to make appointments with our career counselors. Thanks for listening and see you next time.